Hi, everybody. Welcome back for our second lecture on Russia and its neighbors, or the Russian domain, if you prefer. In this lecture, we're going to take a look at the population and settlement geography of the region, as well as the cultural geography of the region. So um, how many people live in Russia in this region that we're talking about? Well, approximately 200, 200 million people live in the region. Uh, as you can see from the map, uh, uh, the population is very unevenly distributed. So I'm going to ask you, what is the spatial pattern that you observe in this map uh, for the population? And if you say that most of the population lives in the west, you're absolutely correct. Most of the population lives in the western part of the region, and they, uh, uh, most of the population also lives in cities. So most of the population lives to the west of the Ural Mountains. Remember, that was our dividing line right in this area in here. Okay, in what's known as European Russia. That's where you will find the densest populations. Uh, some other patterns that we can observe. Uh, you can see there's some patterns down along here, or some uh, population concentrations down along here. This would be what? It would be the best agricultural lands. And so once again, we see people concentrated where there's the best um, agricultural lands. So in European Russia, we have about 110 million people. And Siberia probably has somewhere around 30 million. And then in the rest of the region, we have about 60 million people, Belarus, Ukraine, uh, Moldova, and so forth. Georgia and Armenia, sorry. Uh, the European Corps has the largest cities, biggest industrial complexes, best farms. Moscow, Nizhny Novgorod are two of the largest cities. Moscow has a population of probably around 9 million people. Nizhny Novgorod has about 1.4 million people. That's That uh, used to be known as Gorky, if you've ever heard uh, the term Gorky Park or heard of the book Gorky Park. St. Petersburg, which used to be the capital and was known as Leningrad in the Soviet era, has about 5 million people. And as I said, it was the capital of the Russian Empire from 1912 to 1917. I think uh, other cities, and remember, I mentioned when we looked at the physical geography, the importance of the Volga River and the Ural Mountains. Uh, the Volga cities include Kazan with about 1.1, Samara with 1.2, Saratov with 900,000, and Volgorod with about uh, a million people. So uh, here's Nishni Novgorod, here's Kazan, Samara, Saratov, and uh, Volgorod. And then, of course, St. Petersburg is up here. It's the window on the west. And then this is Moscow, of course. Okay, Belarus and Ukraine. Minsk is the capital of Belarus. It has about 1.7 million people. Kiev is the capital of Ukraine with about 2.6. Tbilisi is the capital of Georgia with about 1.3. And Yerevan, with 1.3 million people, is the capital of Armenia. And so you can see these different cities. Here's Tbilisi, for example. Here's Yerevan. Uh, I think I missed the capital of um, Moldova, which is uh, Chisinau. And then uh, Kiev, I pointed out, Minsk, and so forth. Okay. The, um, the Siberian highlands are divided into two zones of settlement. We have industrial settlements along the Trans-Siberian Railroad. And I think it's important for you to understand the significance of the Trans-Siberian uh, Railroad uh, and being able to uh, disperse and colonize much of this region uh, in, the, in the eastern part of the former Soviet Union. So we have cities such as uh, 
Yekaterinburg, Chelyabinsk, uh, Serov, and so forth. Uh, and then further to the east, we have Novosibirsk, Krasnoyarsk, and then of course Irkutsk, which I believe I pointed out uh, earlier. And then um, so uh, there's thinner settlements along the Baal, uh, Baikal Amur mainline or BAM railroad, and then which actually runs north of Lake Baikal. So the uh, the um, Trans-Siberian Railroad runs a lot to the south and eventually to Moscow and the BAM runs to the north of Lake Baikal and eventually to Moscow. Uh, north of the BAM Railroad there are very few settlements as you can see. Uh, Yakutsk, uh, Norilsk as I pointed out, and Verhoyansk over in here. And then of course we have a few uh, scattered settlements out in here. And then Vladivostok is the uh, important city on the Pacific for the railroad. Or, I'm not for the, well, for the railroad, but also for, the, uh, for Russia. Talking about some of the regional migration patterns, um, and I'm going to talk about this in the sense, uh, not looking at the current time, but I want to look at the past to give you a little bit of understanding of how uh, this area, uh, how the population spread through this area. Uh, There's an eastward, move, eastward movement of population from 1860 to 1914. This was, as I mentioned before, accelerated by the Trans-Siberian Railroad. Pool factors, those factors that encouraged people to move out into this area, were uh, farming opportunities in the south, greater political freedom than under the czars, who were in control of uh, this area at that time. Uh, and if you know, the czars were the authoritarian leaders. They were kind of like the kings. In, uh, in Europe, but uh, uh, because it, uh, uh, much of uh, this territory was still living under very feudal conditions, even in, uh, up to the, in the uh, mid-1800s up to the early part of the 20th century. Uh, so the czars were like the kings, so to speak, I guess, who dominated politics during the pre-Russian, uh, pre-1917 Russian Empire. Almost one million settlers to Siberia from 1860 to 1914. And this actually continued under the Soviet uh, uh, regime. Uh, under the Soviet regime, though, uh, things changed a little bit. Uh, to be able to move around uh, the country, well, actually, Russia had what was known, or the Soviet Union had what was known as a propiska system, which is an international uh, internal passport system. So people had to have papers that showed where they lived and where they belonged. And if you showed the authorities your papers and you weren't in the place where you belonged, they would send you back uh, to the city. So there was no free movement of people during the Soviet era. Like we have in the United States. You know, if you want to move from Binghamton, New York to California, you, you, and you have the money to do so, you just get up and move. You could not do that in the Soviet Union. You had to have permission from the government to be able to move. And obviously, the government didn't give people uh, permission very often. Um, so they had this propiska system, which was really the internal passport system of the Soviet Union. But movement under the Soviets um, were, was really uh, for political reasons. Russian leaders moved selected populations to new locations. Uh, they moved people to Siberia, to ex first of all, to exploit the natural, natural resources. Uh, and in many cases, these were minorities and people that they viewed as a threat to the, uh, uh, to the regime 
and so they were sent uh, there as slave labor. Political prisons in the region, uh, and that region became known as the Gulag Archipelago, which is a, a large collection of political prisons in which inmates often disappeared or spent years far removed from family and homes. Uh, there was also forced migrations of um, forced migrations of, of Stalin. Uh, had forced migrations between 1928 and 1953, and this included the removal of Jews to the Far East and a reloc relocation of other ethnic minorities during World War II. Um, so let me see, uh, what else do we want to talk about here? Oh, other reasons for movements was uh, Russia had something called a Russification policy, or what became known as Russification. It was the Soviet policy of reselling Russians into non-Russian portions of the USSR. This increased Russian dominance in those places. Um, so we're talking about places, obviously, out in this area, but also in some of the other places as the Soviet Union expanded into Central Asia and obviously into um, uh, Eastern, uh, Eastern Europe as well. Uh, the Russians would send Russians into those areas uh, to gain dominance. Russians became a significant minority in former Soviet republics, often given and they were often given special treatment. Uh, Kazakhstan at one time was 38% Russia, Russian, Latvia 34% Russian, Estonia 30%, Belarus was 13%, and Ukraine about 22% Russian. Many of the former um, Russified republics, so to speak imposed rigid citizenship and language requirements to encourage Russians to leave after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, they didn't want the Russians there anymore, so they encouraged them to leave by put, imposing these rigid citizenship and language requirements. That is, you couldn't, uh, um, you know, you had to speak the native language. So let's say Latvia, for example. If you couldn't speak Latvian, uh, and uh, it was very difficult to get citizenship, okay, and in, in, in some of these republics, because uh, these people really felt um, that they were m mistreated uh, by the Russians who lived there. The Russians uh, had most of the best jobs. Uh, all this education was in Russia and things like that. So they wanted to get rid of the Russian influence after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Okay, so moving on to take a look at... Um, um, these are some of the urban landscapes, and I'll talk a bit more about the urban geography of this region and uh, some upcoming slides. But you can see, uh, actually, uh, in some ways, the architecture is absolutely amazing, as you can see from this uh, church in the background. This would be a this is an Eastern Orthodox church, and uh, we actually have uh, some of this. Uh, you can see some of this architecture actually here in, in Binghamton because we had a uh, Ukrainian Orthodox church here in Binghamton. Uh, we also have, um, actually, we have a number of Ukrainian Orthodox churches in the Binghamton area that have a similar agriculture or architecture to it. Okay, but very fascinating architecture. If you ever have an opportunity to go to Moscow or any place in the, uh, in the former Soviet Union or Russia, Ukraine, uh, very fascinating. And this is Moscow. You can see how Moscow. Uh, obviously, being the largest city, probably the most, well, it is the most important city in the region. Uh, very densely populated, as you can tell from this map. We have the Moscow River that flows through it um, as well. And I'll talk more, like I said, I'll talk more about the uh, urban geography in a few minutes. 
Uh, here's some other urban landscapes. You can see some wildfires that occurred uh, in Russia uh, during a recent summer that um, because of the um, record summer heat that they experienced and also the drought, a lot of the trees in the surrounding area uh, caught on fire from wildfires and a lot of the smoke came into the city. And then this is St. Petersburg and you can see uh, how uh, St. Petersburg is laid out with its various parks and so forth. Let's talk about the more recent uh, uh, migration patterns uh, in the Soviet Union. Um, some of the more, as I mentioned, a, a lot of the areas that where Russians uh, formerly lived now want the Russians to leave. And you can see this in the current migration patterns of the region. Um, as you can see, a lot of people are leaving Siberia, uh, mainly because of the very brutal living conditions in this area. Very brutal living conditions in this area, so it's encouraging people to leave. But you can also see Russians are moving back from uh, former Soviet uh, uh, countries such as Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, the Central Asian republics. Okay, people are moving back into Russia. We also have Russians moving back into uh, from Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, as I mentioned before, and other parts uh, where Russians uh, no longer are so welcomed. Uh, and then you can also see that we have Russians leaving the region as well, some coming to the United States. There's a large pop Russian population in New York City, for example, to Canada. And then we've had uh, a lot of Russian Jews uh, make the move back to, uh, back to um, Israel approximately about a million Jews moved back to Israel. So, um, and then you can see there's also movement uh, with, uh, within Russia as people are seeking economic opportunity in other places. And what's actually interesting is that this border between China and Russia has always been disputed. And um, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, it's become much easier for Chinese to move back in uh, to this area of Russia. And a lot of farmers, have, uh, Chinese farmers, have been moving back in to this area because this does have this is some good agricultural land here. And uh, there's a concern that China may actually try to annex this part of Russia at some point if the population of Chinese gets large enough in here. So it's kind of an interesting situation. Now, I already mentioned some of these movements, uh, the Eastern Movement uh, that was enabled by the Trans-Siberian Railroad, so I'm not going to talk about that too much, or I'm not going to talk about that again. I'm the same with the BAM Railroad. And I also talked about the motives, the direct migration, uh, the, the political migration uh, to imprison people, russification, uh, I also talked about. And here's some Chinese immigrants, uh, probably in that Amur, uh, river Valley that I pointed out right along the border. And these are some non-Russian immigrants uh, into Russia as well, seeking opportunities from um, probably from Central Asia for the most part. Um, in Russia, there's always been a big fear of a growing Muslim population. And really, that's why Russia, um, the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union, I should say, uh, the Soviet Union actually colonized uh, those Central Asian republics to uh, prevent uh, Muslims from moving into Russia. But I suspect that these, uh, most of these folks are from uh, some of those uh, Central Asian republics and probably also from Chechnya and Dagestan as well. 
So let's talk about the urban geography of this region. The cities uh, are, are really very interesting uh, to, uh, to talk about and to, uh, to see. So um, the Marxist philosophy of Soviet planners encouraged urbanization. Uh, Soviet large-scale industrialization obviously favored cities. Um, urbanization it, uh, is probably close to 75% throughout much of the region. It's, it's probably a bit higher in Russia than some of the other, um, than particularly in Georgia and Armenia and Moldova and places like that. What's really interesting about the Soviet cities that the, is that the uh, Soviets carefully planned the cities. The cities were selected for specialized purposes with predetermined population levels. So as I was reading through some of the populations of those cities earlier, you could see that many of them uh, have about a million people in them. And that seems to be a favorite size um, that, the, that the planners liked uh, uh, for their cities. As I mentioned before, internal passports kept people from moving freely. People who went, people went to work where the government sent them. Um, Moscow was uh, the USSR's leading administrative center and remains the capital of the country today uh, and its most important business center as well. Uh, it was the core of the Soviet bureaucracy, major educational research and media center. Moscow often exceeded its population targets. The planning uh, caused cities, capital cities, caused capitals of republics and designated uh, industrial cities to grow. Freedom of movement that came with the demise of the Soviet Union is enabling some population shifts through mass migration, although mass migrations have not come about. So let's take a look at the inside of the Russian city, uh, the structure. So we have the center of the city, which has uh, the superior con uh, transit connections, best uh, department stores and shops, best housing, most important offices. Um, and that would be particularly true in, in uh, Moscow and some of the larger cities. The inner city decay is very rare uh, in Russia. As a matter of fact, it's almost non-existent. Uh, there's extensive public spaces, uh, such as parks and monumental architecture. And what's actually interesting is since the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, they've actually uh, started to uh, tear down a lot of the uh, monuments and so forth to the, to the old uh, Soviet leaders. Uh, there's uh, no suburban sprawl really to speak of. Uh, personal garden space at the edge of town uh, is used to compensate for high grocery prices. Uh, the, the cities really have what uh, is sometimes called a concentric land use pattern to them. The cores of the cities, the central parts of the cities, predate the Soviet regime and contain uh, pre-1900 buildings. In the first ring outside the core, we have public housing and, and satsagrads, satsagrads, which is socialist neighborhoods based on a close connection between workplace and home. And these, you could refer to these as dormitories. And uh, actually, you might even be able to see some of these in this uh, Moscow housing down below here. In the second ring, which is sometimes referred to the uh, Chermoyoysky, uh, we have large uniform apartment buildings, as you can see right here in this image, right? Um, built in the 1950s and 60s with the idea and actually, these weren't very well built. They were actually pretty shoddily built, but uh, there was a huge housing shortage in uh, the Soviet Union at that time. That, uh, so they were shoddily built in the 50s and the 60s with the idea that they would be replaced uh, after economic growth. Um, 
and unfortunately that hasn't occurred. In, three, in ring three, or the third ring around the city, we have what are known as the micro rayons. And these are much larger housing projects of the 1970s and 80s. And these are self-contained community with stores and services nearby. Uh, they're usually nine to 24 stories high. And uh, by public transit, they're about 20, or I'm sorry, 45 minutes from the city core. And then outside that, uh, in the rural areas, we have the rural dachas, and these are country houses. And during the Soviet era, and even today, these were only available to the, to the elite. Most of the changes after the collapse of the USSR were symbolic, involving name changes and destruction, as I mentioned, of public statuary. Uh, so uh, Leningrad uh, is now back to St. Petersburg. It was St. Petersburg, named after Peter the Great, who um, uh, uh, founded the city and developed the city. Uh, he was the uh, emperor at the time, or the czar at the time, and uh, built St. Petersburg as Russia's uh, window on the west. Uh, and then um, when the Soviets came to power, they named it after Lenin. They called it Leningrad. And then after the collapse of the Soviet Union, it's back to St. Petersburg. It's just an example. So let's move on and talk a little bit about the demographic crisis uh, in the Soviet Union. The, uh, the general population decline in Russia, Belarus, and the Ukraine. Uh, very low birth rates and rising mortality rates, especially among middle-aged males. Um, life expectancy of women uh, since the collapse of the Soviet Union has uh, declined from, from 75 years to about 73, 73 years. Life expectancy of men has dropped from 65 to 61 years. Uh, some of the causes uh, are uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, causes that are attributed to this uh, demographic decline is a fraying social fabric, um, uncertainty of the economy, and declining health of women of women of childbearing age. Stress-related diseases such as alcoholism, heart disease, and so forth have also increased. Uh, there's been a rising uh, level of crime, and especially murders, and suicide rates also have been increasing as well. Um, and the toxic environment, of course, doesn't help either. Uh, so the government has uh, put into place some uh, efforts to try to uh, curb this declining population. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how they work out. Uh, so this is pretty interesting. This was uh, the Russian popula uh, po population pyramids of Russia in uh, 2000, as you can see at the top here. And you can see, uh, as indicated, a uh, very uh, narrow base, or much more narrow base than some of the middle areas, which indicates very low fertility. And you can see that... Uh, we have a surplus of females, obviously, uh, in the population. And that's pretty typical in most populations. But if we get up here into uh, some of these areas, you can see there's a, a pretty big surplus of females compared to males. And that's probably due to the large number of deaths that Russia experienced and the Soviet Union experienced during World War II. It's estimated that Russian or the Soviet Union uh, experienced somewhere around 26 to 30 million deaths during uh, during World War II. So real, the population was really devastated. And then if we move to 2050, you can see that uh, the population is really aging and it's actually shrinking uh, in, in size. 
So let's uh, move on and talk a little bit about the cultural geography of the region. Um, Slavic, uh, um, Slavic is the, the main, main language in the area. Russian peoples, Russian-speaking peoples diffused uh, from Central Europe, uh, from Central European Russia to other parts of the region, as we talked about. And you can see that uh, on this map here. And you can see how the Soviet Union expanded. Uh, and that's really what we're going to talk about is the Russian expansion uh, of uh, the, the expansion of the Russian Empire, I should say. Russian expansion paralleled European colonization. In the 1500s and 1600s, Russians expanded eastward, as you can see from this particular map. So the Russian homeland was really in this area here, uh, what is today around Moscow and so forth. And they moved, and you can see they moved westward, but really began to move eastward and into Central Asia and so forth, as you can see. Um, there. Um, the growth of the empire uh, was kind of slow and, and halting at times. Uh, enemies in the 1600s were Sweden, Poland, and the Ottoman Turks. Uh, these enemies were weaker in the 1700s, uh, and that's especially true uh, in the westward expansion here. Um, the, Russian, uh, the enemies of Russia were uh, weaker in the 1700s, and Russia gained territory. Uh, the conquest of Sweden, Sweden led to the creation of St. Petersburg, as I mentioned before. The city of uh, St. Petersburg was built by uh, Peter the Great as Russia's window on the west. And um, the defeat of, Poles, uh, of the Poles and Turks added Belarus and Ukraine uh, under the Russian influence. Uh, in the 1900s, a final major expansion uh, was uh, undertaken, and the uh, largest gains in, uh, during that time period were in Muslim Central Asia, so down in this area, down in here. And remember, I, I mentioned that Russia always had a fear of Muslim expansion into, into Russia itself, and part of the reason for this expansion and the Russification or the attempt at russification of this area was to halt that Muslim expansion. Peoples of uh, the Caucasus fought, uh, and uh, eventually some of these people were exterminated, and Russian influence then extended into this area. And you can see uh, by the uh, colors on the map uh, the different time periods when these areas were added. The Transcaucasian people, Christian, uh, Armenian, Christian, Armenian, Georgians accepted Russian rule in preference to Persians and the Ottomans who were coming in from the other direction. So the legacy of the empire, uh, tightly integrated cultural region, St. Petersburg, uh, the whole way over to the Sea of Japan, pretty much, or the East Sea, if you wish. Um, but many pockets of linguistic, national, religious differences remain. There's a lot of indigenous and different ethnic groups that remain throughout the region. Um, indigenous people retain majority, particularly in the northern part of the, of the area, uh, in northern Siberia and up in this area as well. And this obviously uh, maintained the uh, senses of uh, sources of tension. Uh, they had a, uh, Russia, of course, had an ambivalent relationship with the rest, uh, with the West, I'm sorry, and a long history of authoritarian government in Russia, first under the Tsars and then under the Soviet leaders. 
Uh, looking at the linguistic diversity of the region, as I mentioned before, the Slavic languages dominate. Uh, the Belarusians, uh, uh, looking at the Belarusians and the Ukrainians, Belarus is more or less a nation state. Uh, that means the, uh, the people who live in the territory that's called Belarus, um, most of those people are, are Belarusians. Uh, they don't have many people from outside of Belarus living in that, in that country. There are some scattered Polish, Russian, Polish and Russian minorities in Belarus, but most of the people, as I said, are Belarusians. Um, Russians and Belarusians are very similar in their culture, their language, and, uh, and, and so forth. The Ukraine is more complex, uh, quite frankly. Uh, parts of the eastern Ukraine and Crimean, and Crimean Peninsula are primary, primarily Russian-speaking. Okay, so uh, that would be in this area over in here. Okay, and you can see this is Belarusian, this is Ukrainian. And over in this area, of uh, we have Ukrainian and Belarusians as well. Um, some Ukrainians found in southern Russia, uh, of course, um, as they moved into that area as well. Uh, the breakup of the USR increased nationalism and creates tension for Russia uh, within the U Ukraine. Uh, language patterns within Russia. Ethnic Russians dominate. 80% of the people in Russia speak Russian. Uh, there's pockets of indigenous peoples. Some seek autonomy. Uh, so, for example, uh, we have uh, uh, Finno-Ugric people, uh, or Finnish peoples, if you prefer, and those would be the Karelians, Komi, and Mordivians. And that, uh, in this area, here's our Karelians, okay, and our Komi people. And then we have Uralic, uh, Uralic Altaic speakers, uh, which would be, and remember, that's a language that's related to Turkish, so that would be the Tatars, Actually, the Turkish Tatars, the Kut, and Mongols. Okay, so uh, the Tatars are located in this region for the most part. The Kut people up in here, as you can see in Siberia. And the Evenki people also in Siberia. Other groups, uh, uh, and then of course there's uh, the Evenki people are actually uh, related to the Manchu of China. Then we have Transcaucasian languages, uh, and which is a really interesting place. Uh, there's uh, three language families in, in a region the size of Ohio, 30 distinct languages. Okay, and actually I'm going to move to the next map, uh, next slide, because we have a better map of that region. So you can see what I'm talking about from this particular map, the different languages that are spoken. Three language families in a region the size of Ohio, as I said, 30 distinct languages, uh, in Dagestan alone, okay, Altaic languages along the Caspian Sea, Indo-European languages, and Armenia. So a very linguistic diverse, uh, linguistically diverse place, and it's also uh, very ethnically diverse as well, obviously. And this creates a lot of tension down in this area. And we'll talk more about that tension when we talk about the geopolitics of the region. Um, and then you can see this is actually the Ukraine, and you can see that we have uh, Russians, uh, Russian-speaking people in the Crimean Peninsula, as I mentioned before, and of course in the eastern part, right near the border with Russia itself, which you know obviously makes sense. So let's move on. Uh, this is some, some photographs. Uh, this is uh, an Ervenki person, 
as you can see. And you can see really kind of has the Chinese appearance uh, in many ways. And then this is the Russian Orthodox Church. And look at this amazing architecture. And you can see much of this church is made out of wood. Now, if you, uh, if you uh, go to school in Binghamton uh, while you're taking this course, or I mean, if you're taking this course and you go to school uh, at Binghamton University, we actually have in the Binghamton area a wooden Russian-Ukrainian church. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, the church is built completely out of wood. Uh, and I can tell you how to get there uh, if you want to get there, if you want to go see it sometime. It's absolutely incredible. The entire church is built out of wood. And they and they like to have visitors come and, and look at the church because it is it's pretty incredible. Um, so moving on to uh, talk about um, geographies of religion. I'm sorry, I actually wanted to stay back on that on that slide while I talked about religions. Uh, USS, uh, during the Soviet era, re uh, religion was actually prohibited. Um, most houses of, of worship during the Soviet era were converted to other uses. Uh, during World War II, there was a reprieve by the government, and they actually allowed people to practice their religion. Um, after, the, after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, religion came back into the open. Most Russians, Belarusians, Ukrainians uh, are followers of the Eastern Orthodox Christianity. And this is an example of what the architecture looks like, obviously. Western Ukraine uh, has a variation of Roman Catholicism, and it's referred to as the Uniate Church, which allows them to retain many Orthodox rituals and practices. Western Ukrainians are, um, are more nationalistic than Easterns and more opposed to Russia. Um, the Caucasus, Armenian Christian, Christianity differs from both Eastern Orthodox and Catholic traditions. Um, Georgian Christianity is similar to Orthodox uh, Christianity. So you can see there's a wide variety of religions and the way religions are practiced and so forth that, uh, that also contributes to some tension throughout the region as well. Um, other religions in the region, we have Sunni Muslims uh, that number somewhere around 15 to 22 million. And they inhabit uh, inhabitants of North North Caucasus, the Volga Tatars, in the that I pointed out on the uh, previous map, are also uh, Sunni Muslim. Central Asians near the Kazakhstan border as well. And as I mentioned, uh, Jews um, there were uh, more than one million, and uh, many Jews actually left uh, Russia at the collapse of the Soviet Union. But there remains about one million. Uh, uh, so we'll find Jews in Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine, especially in the larger cities of the European West. Persecution has caused many Russians to emigrate uh, to Israel as well, as I mentioned before. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, cultural diversity, in the, um, uh, not just the cultural diversity, we've been talking about the cultural diversity, but a little bit about the Russian culture in the current global context. Russian culture has strong inward uh, orientation. Uh, most common people have little interaction with the outside world. Russian high culture is westernized. Russian composers, novelists, dramatists are famous in Europe and the United States. You can think of people like Tchaikovsky, uh, Dostoevsky. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, my pronunciation is not that good. And Chekhov, for example. Uh, 
culture during the Soviet era, first uh, European-style uh, modern art flourished. By the late 1920s, leaders scorned modernism as decadent expression of a declining capitalist world. Many artists fled or were exiled, exiled to Siberian labor camps. Soviets, the Soviets promoted something called social realism, a style devoted to the realistic depiction of workers harnessing the forces of nature or struggling against capitalism. The traditional high arts, uh, classical music and ballet, uh, with no obvious political connotation, received lavish state subsidies during the Soviet era. Changes uh, began to occur in the 1980s as young people adopted a rebellious approach. U.S.-style mass consumer culture became popular. Rock music, uh, wearing jeans, and so forth and so on. Uh, improved information flows made possible by modern technology made state censorship much more difficult beginning in the 1980s. After the Soviet era, a return of basic freedoms brought a flood of global cultural influences. Western books and magazines, obviously the internet, thoughts about property ownership, um, sometimes uh, fake uh, products and you know, the uh, fake luxury products and so forth uh, that we see actually see in other parts of the world as well. McDonald's, of course, Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, all those sorts of things became available. The English language uh, classes became popular as people wanted to learn English and could communicate and understand uh, Western movies uh, and, and, other, and TV shows uh, better. Films from Hong Kong and, and Mumbai uh, or Bollywood, if you prefer, also came into the area. Uh, so some of the problems of the newfound openness, uh, inflow of consumer goods has been accompanied by an economic downturn, so not many people can actually afford the luxury goods. Um, they're usually too expensive for most people, and nationalists in the region are unhappy with foreign goods. <clears throat> some Orthodox Christians also work to limit the spread of non-Russian religions, especially those uh, brought in by uh, Western missionaries, such as Protestantism, and then, of course, Islam, and even Tibetan uh, Buddhism, which has come into the region as well. So I think we're going to stop there uh, for, this, uh, uh, for this lecture, and when we come back, we'll take a look at the geopolitics in Russia and the former Soviet Union countries, as well as the economic geography in the region.